from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Hello and welcome to another CER podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. And today I'm in conversation with Sam Lowe, who is a research fellow at the CER, and Beth Oppenheim, who is a researcher here at the CER. What we're going to discuss today are the Brexit negotiations. And we're going to try and answer the question that Brexit watchers have pondered since the beginning of the talks, which is, will the unity of the 27 crack? So far, the EU 27 have done really well and been remarkably united during the Brexit divorce negotiations. But one perceived wisdom that has been present since the very beginning is that once the negotiations over the future relationship start, this is when the different political and economic interests of the EU 27 are going to come out and Britain will have an easier time trying to divide them. What we do here really is speak uncomfortable truth, break with perceived wisdom. That's what Sam and Beth are going to do today, I believe. And we're going to start with a question to you, Beth, um, which is about the Franco-German line. So Germany and France have been pretty hardline during the Brexit negotiations and have set the tone for all of the 27. What is the logic behind this hard stance? So you're right, the dominant EU line has been the Franco-German mantra of unity, integrity and indivisibility. And these are the concepts that really underpin the European Council guidelines from last spring, which rule out cherry picking, that famous word, of the four freedoms, that is goods, services, capital and people. And both Macron and Merkel have been very vocal in defending the integrity of the single market. I mean, the two countries view themselves as the custodians of the European project, and France and Germany both believe that any cherry-picking of the single market could lead to its collapse, or even, as Macron put it slightly melodramatically, kill the European idea. Although you can see in previous examples that the EU has kind of been willing to offer some cherry-picking where it's been convenient for it. For instance, in the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement, there is no freedom of movement, but they do have deep market access for goods and, in theory, also scope for internal market treatment on services. But this is actually pure pragmatism. The EU does not want high levels of migration from these Eastern Partnership countries, where living standards and wages are much lower than in some of the wealthier EU member states. So in the UK's case, there really isn't an incentive to allow for such cherry picking. If the EU granted the UK an opt-out on freedom of movement, for example, then that could really entice other governments that are facing Eurosceptic pressures to ask for better terms outside the EU. Plus, the privileges of these association agreements, they come at a very high price, which is in return for Ukraine aligning to the vast majority of EU laws, which I can't really see the UK being willing to do. Um, but France and Germany, they couldn't afford to be tough. They have large, diversified economies, and public opinion in these countries is very staunchly pro-European. And how successful have Paris and Berlin been in trying to set the tone for the rest of the EU27? Pretty successful, to be honest. I think because of the fact that they have the institutions on side, and Michel Barnier has been sticking to the same line. It's really basically the line has held thus far. Right, Sam, Brexiteers have argued that the EU27 is going to give the UK a generous trading arrangement because their economies stand to lose from a hard Brexit. Which countries are the most exposed to a hard Brexit and might they come out and support British demands for a privileged trading relationship? I think the thing to understand is that the EU are actually offering a very good trading arrangement. What we've seen with the draft council guidelines in relation to the future uh, relationship is an offer of a trade agreement that goes far beyond anything that's been offered to anyone else. However, it is still very much 
a trade agreement. It is not an association agreement. It is not the EEA. It is not a customs union yet, although that that option still seems to be on the table. So the answer to your question of will we be offered a preferential trading arrangement or a good one? Yes, but within the constraints of the parameters that we have created for ourselves through the UK's own red lines. And in relation to how exposed other countries to the fallout from Brexit, I mean, the UK is the most exposed by far. Ireland's pretty similar. Beyond that, you have, to a much lesser extent, but still at a a reasonable level of exposure, you have Germany, you have the Netherlands, you have Belgium, you actually have Malta as well. That's largely for tax reasons, as 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 far as we can tell. But but when it comes down to it, will they offer the UK a relationship that grants it the access of now, but for reduced obligations? And the answer is no. And it's because the integrity of the EU market is far more important to them, both economically and geopolitically, than their continued trading relationship or, or the amount of trade exposure they have in relation to the UK and Brexit. And there's also something else to consider, which is the EU as it stands with the UK in it is the biggest commercial entity on earth in terms of its power as a trading bloc. When the UK leaves, it will be second behind the US. But what this means is that it's currently able to set the terms of trade globally, and it will not countenance anything that would undermine that. And granting the UK preferential access to its market beyond the obligations it's prepared to take on would do that. But what about the German car industry, Sam? Well, I've always thought the German car industry argument is, is slightly strange because there, there, there's clearly issues when you take into account pan-European supply chains and fragments of that supply chain being located in the UK. But when you take into account the likely transition period that's coming up, that provides time for companies that are exposed, their supply chains are exposed, to relocate the supply chains to within the EU27. And then you know what? We're probably going to have a trade agreement between the UK and the EU. Every EU trade agreement zero tariffs cars. So yes, there will be disruption in the UK. Yes, there will be increased bureaucracy for German car manufacturers selling their final product into the UK. But once that's been worked out, they'll still be able to sell their BMWs into the UK at a competitive price as they do now. What it will mean on the downside is that UK factories that are currently servicing those supply chains will no longer be. Their business model still works. Right, so BMW won't save you, but the city might, right? This is what we keep hearing, that because of Europe's largest financial centre, the city of London being in Britain, that this provides substantial leverage for the UK during the Brexit negotiations. And one issue uh, which is particularly relevant here is the UK demand for financial passporting. Sam, can you really quickly tell us what financial passporting is and then explain why the EU for now has been rejecting this proposal? Well, the UK has actually moved away slightly from its ask for financial passporting, at least explicitly. It's now asking for mutual recognition or mutual equivalence or something like that, which which would achieve the same outcome. Essentially, what it means is it allows a bank located in the UK's jurisdiction to sell into the rest of the EU 27 whilst essentially abiding by the rules of the UK. It's it's cross-border trade in financial services. And the reason the EU have pushed back on this is it's quite legitimate, in, in my opinion. And it's, if you are a government, how much do you want, how safe do you feel with a pool of systemic risk that could bring down your government if it goes wrong, sitting offshore, operating under potentially different rules without any means of you holding them to account if something goes wrong, of you intervening if you think something's about to go wrong. 
I mean, not very safe. It, is that a rhetorical question? It is a rhetor- yeah, it's a rhetorical question because that's, that's essentially what we're asking for. And when you look around the world in terms of cross-border trade in financial services from one jurisdiction into another, you only ever get it piecemeal. You, you have equivalence-type rulings that the EU uses in certain areas. And these are always areas of low systemic risk or low consumer risk. Never comprehensive. And there's a reason for that, because it's, if something goes wrong, it can bring down your government. So the EU have, of course, pushed back on that, because we're saying we don't want to remain under the harmonised rules-based system that the EU operates. We don't want to remain under the purview of the Court of Justice. We don't want the Commission poking their nose in anymore. And they've said, OK, fine, but that means that you can't have access on the same terms as now. And some people point out that, oh, TTIP, so the EU-US trade agreement, that was going to include financial services wasn't it? So so that means that this agreement should include financial services because otherwise it'd be hypocritical. And the answer is all EU trade agreements cover financial services. They all include it. The, its WTO services schedules cover financial services. But inclusion of services isn't the point. It's how comprehensive the access it allows for. And when you look at what TTIP was offering, essentially beyond the standard offer on market access, which is what the UK will have, what every country in the world pretty much has, what Canada has, it proposed a potential regulatory dialogue where the regulators would have discussions over time, try and coordinate on the international stage to avoid sort of new barriers emerging and seek out opportunities for equivalency rulings. And we could probably get that or something similar, but it's not financial passporting. And the reason the EU's not so concerned about financial services as people in the UK seem to think they should be is that we've got a transition period pretty much locked in. Now we hope it could still all go horribly wrong, but... That provides another two years for the EU to make it very clear to financial services institutions in the UK what they need to do if they want to keep selling in the EU27 market. And it buys time for them to reallocate resource where needed. And then after that, if there are some teething problems, and there will be, the EU can unilaterally decide to accept in those specific areas that those financial institutions can continue to provide that service into the EU for a given amount of time to smooth over the cracks. It seems to me as if they can work it out. Of course it's going to cause some problems, but it's not the existential threat that I think the UK city would have us believe. That was an excellent explanation. I think I really understood that for the first time. Thanks, Sam. Right, Beth. So citizens' rights were mostly secured uh, at the end of last year, in December 2017. And the discussion between Britain and the rest of the EU27 is now moving on to the UK's future immigration scheme. Some member states, of course, have large numbers of their citizens living in the UK, and most governments are going to want this to continue. What do you think? Will member states who do have many of their citizens living here in Britain be likely to offer the British concessions on market access in exchange for a future UK immigration scheme, which gives preference to European citizens? I mean, I think a preferential immigration regime for European citizens could definitely earn some goodwill, some brownie points. The UK could agree to offer free movement to European citizens with job offers, for example, though this might well be too generous for Brexiteers to swallow. Another option could be potentially a preferential work permit system for Europeans. I mean, it's quite difficult to say at the moment because the UK's future immigration regime has yet to be officially sketched out. The paper was due, I think, last summer, but now it looks like it probably won't be released until the autumn once the withdrawal agreement has been concluded. But in terms of the noises we've been getting from the government, they don't really leave us with much cause for optimism. 
a draft Home Office paper was leaked last September, which laid out really quite an uncompromising vision. It stipulated an end to freedom of movement after transition, which is probably not surprising to anyone, priority for resident workers in the job market, and a maximum residency period of two years for low-skilled European immigrants, increased restrictions on spouse visas, an end to extended family reunion, and they also wanted an income threshold for residency. I mean, the one potential cause for optimism is that Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, is less rigid on migration than Theresa May. So we might yet see a somewhat more relaxed approach being pushed through by Rudd. Also, there are some conflicts among the EU27 in terms of whether or not they want to continue freedom of movement because of demographic concerns. So even though remittances sent home are very important to the economies of poorer states, some of the countries, for instance, the Central and Eastern European states, face a bit of a demographic dilemma. These governments are kind of quite ambivalent about the outflow of their citizens to the UK and to other wealthier member states. The young and educated have been leaving in quite big numbers, which has led to stagnated GDP growth and increased spending on pensions, healthcare and welfare. And businesses have actually been struggling to recruit qualified staff. The Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki has implemented a returns programme to try to encourage skilled workers to come back home. So in terms of whether or not countries will be pushing to try to preserve freedom of movement, there are some dilemmas there, as I've said, for some of these countries. And it does really remain to be seen whether goodwill would translate into significant concessions. I think it's similar to what Sam was saying about financial services and a lack of, of trust, really, on the part of the EU, of the UK, very reasonably so, is that any policy that the government might settle on now in terms of migration could at some later stage be rescinded. So how can the EU be confident that the UK won't go back on its promises in the future? Right, okay. So more to it than meets the eye. There's an interesting overlap between the interest of the Brexiteers and the Polish government, potentially. <laughs> Finally, let's talk about money. So the EU27 are about to go into the negotiations for the MFF, the multi-annual financial framework. And those negotiations are testing under normal circumstances. But with the UK's departure, it will become even more challenging. If the UK offered continued budget contributions, might the EU agree to go further with market access than in existing free trade agreements? Might the unity of the 27 crack if the UK can get in with an offer that they can't refuse on budget negotiation? Yeah, I mean, as you say, the EU does face a serious headache in setting its next budget without the UK's contributions. The EU is going to be facing an £11.5 billion hole in its budget, which is equivalent to 12.5%. The UK, I think, makes the second largest contribution of any member state in absolute terms. And um, when it comes to budget setting, net payers will always want to keep their costs down, while net recipients will want to increase the spend on their priorities. So some tensions are inevitable at the next budget setting, as member states are probably going to be vying to reposition themselves on the spectrum from net payer to net recipient. And some countries like Spain and Portugal, for example, that really on the cusp of becoming net payers, which could rouse quite strong domestic opposition. And then those central European countries that have been actually doing relatively well, like the Czech Republic, for example, they're going to be seeing structural and cohesion funds being redirected towards poorer parts of Romania, Bulgaria and Poland, which also is not going to be popular with domestic audiences. And then you have obviously the net contributors who are going to be avoiding shouldering a greater share of the burden. Uh, all three Nordic countries, they're net payers and have been very vocal on the budget issue. Finland, for example, tends to take a similarly stern fiscal line to the Germans. It voted against a third bailout for Greece in 2015 
2015 and delayed a bailout for Portugal in 2011. And both times, despite a lot of popular opposition, the Finns ended up having to foot the bill. And then you also have Italy, who is probably in the least good economic situation of all the net payers. So it's, it's a controversial issue. So that's good news for Britain then? Yeah, it's, it leaves an opportunity there for the UK to exploit. I think a big offer of money from the UK would be welcome. The way I see it is it gets you, might get you TTIP or CETA plus Erasmus plus Horizon 2020, potentially, you know, dependent on other concessions. It gets you into a better place in relation to the UK and EU's relationship, but it doesn't get you Norway with the obligations of Canada. It doesn't break you free of the constraints that all of the other choices of the UK have placed upon ourselves. So, yes, a big offer of money, good, great. That's something that can really help around the edges. But it doesn't change the situation we're in in relation to our eventual trade agreement or not. That's dependent on concessions and changes in the UK's way of thinking across the board. Okay, well, on that cheerful end note, I think that's it for this episode of the CEA podcast. Sam and Beth have co-authored together with John Springford a policy brief on this topic where you can read up more on the question of will the unity of the 27 crack. This was the first podcast ever for Sam, so I think that went really well. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for inviting me finally. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll edit that out. Um, And thank you to you, Beth, as well. Uh, I'll see you in the next one. Thanks for listening to the CEA podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CEA underscore EU.